Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, we read, When he, that is Jesus, had called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. In Mark chapter eight, we've seen the provision of the servant as he feeds the multitudes in verses one through ten. We've seen the provocation of the servant as the religious leaders basically confront him and demand from him a miraculous sign in verses 11 through 13. We saw the power of the servant as he asks his disciple the question of his identity and the prompting of the servant as he heals the blind man of Bethesda. Now comes the prediction of the servant. He predicts his re rejection. He predicts his death. He, he predicts his resurrection in verses 31 through 38. The Lord Jesus calls the crowd and then challenges them both with a requirement in verse 34 and then with a reward in verses 35 through 38. If you're wondering what this passage is about, it is about profit and loss. And if, like me, you've had to, in that terrifying fashion, go over your taxes, you're constantly thinking about profit and you're constantly thinking about loss. One of the things that the passage reveals is it's possible to be a huge success in life. And yet, in another sense, to have a living, but not have a life. Or at least, not the kind of life worth living. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it. What is the most important asset that you possess? What is your greatest treasure? When you answered that question, what came to your mind? Was it family? Was it a house? Was it a particular vehicle? Did you think about your soul? Did you think about your future? You see, Jesus will present the principle of the cross in verse 34. It begins with, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Remember where Jesus is in the text. He has just left Philippi. It's Caesarea Philippi. It is up at the north. This is the place where he's revealed his identity. Remember, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. This is where Jews and Gentiles both, both gather together. And in one short, powerful sentence, 
Mark incorporates the call of discipleship and the cost of discipleship. As a matter of fact, I want you to think carefully just for a moment, because if even one, if even one of these single sentences manages to somehow find its way into your soul and into your spirit, you'll be changed forever. How are we to think about these words? How are we to read these words? Let's begin at least in the beginning. You'll notice it says when he called the people to himself. And his disciples. The very first thing that you should come to grips with is that discipleship is for everyone. It's not the exclusive domain of an elite class of Christians. Discipleship is not the special forces of Christianity. You know, one of the great privileges that I have is working with some of the most gifted men and women in America. They work in local law enforcement agencies. Some of them work for the Bureau and for the FBI. I've had the privilege, privilege, privilege of working with men and women who are highly trained and highly equipped to deal with life's most difficult issues. As a matter of fact, our new special agent in charge of the Denver office is the real life hero of Black Hawk Down. Many of you might have saw the movie of the... The battle at Mogadishu, where some of our special forces were shot down in Mogadishu. And my new boss happens to be one of those guys. And he told me not too long ago about surviving that incident. And the thing that created the mechanism for his survival was his training. His training helped him survive. Here... Jesus is spelling out the crucial motive for following him. As a matter of fact, it is to ask and answer this question. It is the question, it's the dare of risking everything on the claims of Jesus. Jesus invites them to come after him and the parallel is staggering. He spells out what he expects from his disciples and what he expects might shock you. And if you forget everything else that I'm saying here this morning, you might want to underline this. Jesus expects from us what the Father expects from the Son. What did Jesus do? Did the Father expect him to leave heaven? He did. Did he expect him to listen carefully to what he had to say? He did. Did he expect Jesus to obey him completely? He did. Did he equip him for the task at hand? He did. Did he expect him to die? He did. Did he expect him to come back to life? He did. That's part of the point. You see, part of the problem is not all disciples stay followers, as Peter has just demonstrated. Remember, Peter has said, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And then for reasons that we're not quite sure of, he embraces Jesus's revelation that he is going to be rejected and that he is going to die and that he's going to come back to life. And he says, you need to find a new way. In Matthew Matthew's gospel includes, if anybody wants to be my follower, that person must turn away from himself or herself. 
here Mark uses the term deny oneself. He said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Jesus will lay down three conditions for true discipleship. Number one, we must surrender ourselves completely to him. That's right. Denying oneself is most ineffective unless you're willing to embrace a powerful substitute. I'll just be blunt with you. Most of you will never, ever be able to deny yourself unless you're willing to embrace a powerful substitute. What gives a mother the courage to face a bear with a broom? I heard the story of a woman in Alaska who came face to face with a bear. And what will cause her to stare that mother bear down is because she loves her children. There has to be something inside of her that creates a mechanism where her fear of the bear is overwhelmed by her love for her children. And in order, in order for you to deny yourself, something is going to have to well up inside of you where your fear of being hurt, your fear of losing your fear of suffering, your fear of submission will be overwhelmed by something else. And that's what's going to happen. We have to identify with Jesus and his suffering and, and death. So, number one, we surrender ourselves completely to him. Number two, we identify with Jesus in his suffering and in his death. And number three, we must follow him with both an attitude of obedience. But I'm going to suggest to you that that attitude has to translate into actual obedience. The obedience we encounter may take us on a journey that we wouldn't necessarily choose for ourselves, And that's exactly what happens when a person takes up their cross. They're going to embark on a journey that they never intended to take. One Bible teacher says, quote, to deny oneself is not to do without something or even with many things. It's not asceticism. It's not self-rejection or self-hatred, nor is it even disowning of some particular sin. It is to renounce the self as the dominant element in life. It is to replace the self with God in Christ as the object of affections. It is to place the divine will before the Self will, unquote. Let me make this as simple as I can possibly make it. To deny yourself means to say no to yourself, but it also must mean to say yes to Jesus, to the Word of God, and to what God requires. Self denial isn't just simply giving up something or someone, though Jesus may ask us to do exactly that. Some religious traditions practice a sort of giving up in order to make God happy. But this is not what Jesus has in mind in this text. He's not asking you to give up something for Lent. He's not asking you to go without something. He's asking you to say no to your ambitions and your desires and your circumstances and your hopes and your dreams and to say yes to him.
Jesus is asking him to disown all rights and claims to themselves. This is the decisive act of disowning yourself. It is, in effect, the transfer of the lordship that Jesus is looking for. People generally value their rights. They value their right to make their own choices, their own decisions. And Jesus is, in effect, saying, I want you to disavow all claims. The word deny, by the way, is the same word that would later be used to describe Peter's denial of the Lord. You'll remember that when Peter begins to follow Jesus from afar and then he is confronted by the lady, the little girl at the fireplace. And she goes, I can't help but noticing that you talk a little bit different. Your accent sounds like you're from the Galilee. Hey, wait a minute. You're a Galilean. Aren't you a follower of Jesus? And the Bible says that he began to deny it. Same word. It means to utterly and vehemently and most assuredly deny whatever is being propositioned. That's exactly what's happened. Peter was disavowing any knowledge of Jesus and he would curse and swear under an oath in order to emphasize that denial. What Jesus is inviting you to do is to come under new management to literally say no to yourself and yes to him the sad situation most of you won't most of you will get up you'll walk out and you'll leave and your flesh will say say yes to your desires say yes to your dreams say yes to your your circumstances because you don't want to experience pain you don't want to experience suffering you don't want to experience submission and by the way there are at least eight distinctive instances in the new testament where jesus gives a command and the command is followed with those two words follow me there is the call to salvation in John chapter 1, verse 31, and then to follow him. The call to concentration in John chapter 21, verse 19. The call to separation in Matthew 8, 22. The call to self-denial in Matthew 16, 24, and even here. The call to consecration in Matthew 19, 21. The call to imitation in John 12, 26. The call to service in Matthew 4, 19. And then the call to himself in Matthew chapter 9 verse 9 there's lots of calls don't be surprised if this isn't the only call that you ever receive in your life and what does Jesus mean when he says deny yourself and take up your cross I gotta tell you something it must include the concepts of submission and surrender, because in the first century, when this was being said and the people were gathered, they were part of a Roman province and they would have known exactly what a cross meant. That the person who woke up in the morning, who had been sentenced to death and to be sentenced to die, to take up his cross was submission and surrender. In what way was it submission? It was because each person taking up the cross wasn't doing it voluntarily, but involuntarily. There's a reason why the Roman government made you pick up the cross beam or some portion of the cross. 
Because guess what? It was supposed to not only humiliate you, but it was supposed to point out the fact that you no longer had control over your life. You no longer had authority in your life. Rome has authority in your life. And everyone who would pick up their cross, they were on the way, not to to death, but a painful death, a personal death. By the way, I'm going to ask you a question. How many survived? Who survived the cross? What do you think the answer is? No one. No one. When they would place you on the cross and they would rope you to the cross and they would affix you to the cross. You might last hours if you were strong. You might last a whole day. You might even last two days. But no one lasted longer. And by the way. No one can place themselves on a cross. It always requires cooperation. You know how many people in the first century committed suicide by crucifixion? Uh, That would be none. There's a lot of ways that a person can take their life, but they can't take their life this way. In the ancient world, to take up your cross was more than just an expression to expect extraordinary suffering. And I also think it's interesting when Jesus says, take up your cross. He doesn't say, make up your own cross. So many people will come to me and say, I have this cross to bear. I have a horrible cross. My wife, she's such a cross. My husband, he's such a cross. The children are such a cross. But make no mistake about it. It's God who provides the cross. Charles Spurgeon preached, Believer, Christ Jesus presents you with your crosses, and they are no trivial gifts. A man in Georgia, a pastor of a fairly large church, erected a cross, and it was bright, and you could see it for miles, and he had a friend visiting with him, and he said, Look at that cross. You could see it for miles. That cross cost me $10,000. And his friend looked at him and he said, there was a time when you could get one for free. The idea of taking up one's cross adds to the idea of submission and surrender and self-renunciation. And by the way, by taking up the cross, it incorporates at least two ideas. You go public. And you die. Let me tell you what I mean by public. People typically weren't crucified in isolation. It was something very public. It was something very dramatic. You were stripped publicly. You were humiliated publicly. You marched publicly. You were fixed publicly. You were suspended Publicly, you died publicly. There is a temptation. There is a temptation that both following Jesus and being 
a, a, a follower of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus is a private thing, a personal thing, an inward thing. But cross-bearing was never personal. It was never private. It was never simply inward. The person who took up their cross began a march that would only lead to one destination. And that destination was death. And there's a reason why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he said, when Jesus invites you to come and he bids you to take up your cross... He bids you come and die. But behind this bidding and underneath this bidding is something more. And I need you to understand it because the message isn't just simply a message of submission. And it isn't just simply a message of surrender. And it isn't just simply a message of suffering. And it isn't just simply a message of sorrow. Because it's a call. It's a call to remind you that Jesus is inviting you to understand. Understand something that you may not understand. That he's more real than death itself. That's part of the point. It's coming to grips that this life isn't your whole life. And this circumstance isn't your whole circumstance. And what is going to happen to you isn't defined simply by what's happening all around you. Because the truth is you will die. But Jesus invites you to understand something, that there's something way more powerful and way more wonderful that awaits you for those of you who know him and love him. And how can we escape the obvious connection in the previous verse? Only the most dull person would escape the fact that Jesus must suffer rejection. He has to suffer ridicule. He will be humiliated. He will die. And not just any death, but a criminal's death. This is a death of scorn and shame and curse in the biggest meaning of the word. If I could take you all back into time and space and say, hey, guess what? We're all going to die. But you get to pick the method of execution. None of you would pick crucifixion. You'd say, sword right through the heart. Make it quick. You would say, I'm going to place my head on the block and let's cut it off. Gone. This method of execution was so gruesome and so humiliating that the Roman people had a law that it was impossible, impossible, impossible to execute a Roman citizen by this method because no matter how egregious the crime, a Roman citizen should never have to be subjected to this kind of humiliation. And they weren't. Paul the Apostle would place his head on a block It was a thing of shame. But when we read the words and we deny what the scriptures are saying, when you read the words and you go, you know, I I understand that Jesus will live and I understand that Jesus will experience scorn and shame. I understand that Jesus will experience rejection and isolation. I understand that Jesus will experience death, but I don't think that means me. But then Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. I've said this many times to you under many different circumstances. Whenever you see the text read, 
follow me. What is the right question to ask? Where are you going? Where are you going? And Jesus has revealed where he's going. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be incarcerated. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to die. But I'm going to come back to life. And people hear so much of the pain and so much of the suffering and so much of the isolation that through that haze of darkness, sometimes we forget that just on the other side of death is a glorious resurrection. The two prior commands, self-renunciation, cross-bearing, they're only remotely possible in light of this command. And this is the truth. This is the truth. You will not say no to yourself and you will not pick up the instrument of your death unless you are willing to obey this command. Follow me. Because on your own, you won't have the strength and you won't have the desire to say no to sin and no to self. You won't have the desire to pick up the instrument of your self-destruction. The instrument. That is going to create the mechanism where you no longer live. Jesus can empower a person to turn their backs on themselves. And Jesus can empower a person to be willing to die. We follow Jesus by seeking to take his teachings seriously. And now, that's what he's asking you to do. He's asking you to take what he's saying seriously. And when Jesus calls people, he calls them practically and he calls them personally. And and make no mistake about it, it's an individual call. But the elements of a true disciple, the elements of a true disciple will always include saying no to self, picking up the instrument of death and following him. And so one of the ways that you can tell that a person isn't really a disciple of Jesus is because they say yes to themselves and they say no to Jesus. They say yes to the riches and they say yes to the wealth and they say yes to the ambition and they say no to pain and they say no to suffering and they say no to sacrifice. The person who would turn from self has to learn to unlearn our propensity to follow man-made teachings and man-made religion and man-made instructions. And the answer Jesus gives is to pry oneself from oneself, away from oneself. And by the way, that's the only way you'll be able to obey Jesus. When Jesus says, follow me, it is certain he means follow in obedience to the father. Paul calls salvation the obedience of faith in Romans chapter one, verse five. Peter later describes God's sovereign saving work in a life as a sanctifying work of the spirit that you may obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. It says in first Peter chapter one, verse two. And it could very well be that one of the greatest difficulties facing the disciple of Jesus today are the voices, the voices that cry out, 
for self-indulgence and self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment. By the way, in the first century, the challenge to the church was Gnosticism. The idea that secret knowledge was necessary in order to have a right relationship with God. In the second century, the challenge was paganism. How much of the beliefs and rituals of the cultural and religious practices do we take from the past and we present in the in the present in the third century the christians had to face the challenge of a variety of competing claims for the hearts and souls of men and women fast forward to the 19th century and rationalism is the competition as people are challenged can i believe what the bible says can i trust that what it says is true in the 21st century The challenge continues to be selfishness, the self, self-awareness, self. You know, in the 20th century, with the rise of Eastern mysticism, coupled with a church that largely rejected the supernatural, it saw millions of people come to Christ through what was called the charismatic movement. There was a genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Hundreds of thousands of people gave their lives to Jesus. Many who had viewed Christianity as stale and hollow and powerless began to experience this incredible, amazing reality that a real Jesus would come inside of your real heart and forgive your real sins and reconcile you back to the Father. But some of the groups began to experience and teach a strange gospel and a perverted gospel, a gospel where you don't deny yourself, where you don't pick up your cross, where you don't follow Jesus. Many today abandon the biblical gospel for a gospel of self, a gospel of power politics, power evangelism, power church growth, power signs and wonders uh, for a God who sees self-renunciation and self-sacrifice and self-satisfaction as a primitive relic of primitive Christianity. Nothing's changed. The same Jesus who uttered these words, the same Jesus who will go to Jerusalem, the same Jesus who will die on the cross, the same Jesus who will rise from the dead, is asking you to live an extraordinary life. Gone, for the most part, is the preaching that you have to deny yourself. Gone, for the most part, is the preaching of the cross. Gone, for the most part, is following Jesus for the gospel's sake. Bob Dylan used to sing, do you ever wonder just what God requires? Do you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up and strengthen the things that remain? We sang it. Wake up, rise up, wake up, wake up. Allow the voice of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and wake up. There's a reason why the call to prosperity and the call to ease and the call to comfort is so strong. It's because it appeals to yourself. But what if God's goal 
isn't to make you happy, but to make you holy. Did it ever occur to you that God's goal for your life is to make you like Jesus? And if God's goal is to make you holy and to make you like Jesus and make you productive for his kingdom, and if making you productive for the kingdom means taking up your cross and following Jesus, then guess what? Those, those become the true marks of discipleship. The true marks of discipleship isn't whether you go to church and open up your Bible or if you have your own television show or your own radio broadcast. The paradox of self-sacrifice continues. Look what it says in verse 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Why does he say that? He's just said, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Because when those words were being spoken by Jesus, an overwhelming temptation went from the top of their head to the bottom of their toes. There was an overwhelming temptation to save your life. Their hearts started pounding. Suffering, no. Sacrifice, no. Submission, no. No, no. What does all this mean? It could mean as little as living in discomfort instead of comfort. Since Jesus calls us to live lives of self-denial and surrender, possible suffering, possible sacrifice, forsake personal comfort and enjoyment and earthly ties and personal ambition and material riches. And it could begin to escalate and include even life itself. And so the Lord Jesus declares that the greatest gain is the greatest loss. And Jesus says the greatest loss is the greatest gain. What? What are you saying? Winners are losers. And losers are winners. You see, the paradox of winning and losing is really quite simple. Jesus is saying that whoever lives, whoever lives, whoever lives only for themselves, to save themselves, to save their own life, whoever lives and puts luxury and ease and comfort, whoever puts criticism, ambition ahead of honoring and pleasing God is losing an incredible opportunity. And the incredible opportunity is one that you are faced with, not just day by day, but moment by moment. You are faced with the opportunity to say yes to him or no to him. The moment that you say yes to him and no to yourself, you win. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is extending an invitation that basically incorporates two gigantic ideas. You can go for it now and live whatever life you want to live and lose everything later. Or you can abandon it now and get everything that God has to offer. That's the point. In the popular culture, people speak of spiritual disciplines. 
If you go to any bookstore, if you go to any metaphysical bookstore, if you turn on any television station, you can hear about spiritual and you can hear about spiritual disciplines. And popular spiritual disciplines include self-improvement, self-awareness, self-realization, self-fulfillment, the ability and potential to satisfy yourself. But contrast that with biblical spiritual disciplines, maturity, realization of the fruit of the spirit and the character of Christ and the life of the believer, dependence on God and independence from self. For the Christian spiritual discipline is based on the Holy Spirit in our life working inside of us. John Ortberg in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, Spiritual Disciplines for Ordinary People. He says, a disciplined person is someone who can do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, with the right spirit. And in order for you to do the right thing, the right way, at the right time, It's going to require God's Holy Spirit, not a selfish spirit. The Lord contrasts the person who seeks to save their life with the one who loses their life for Jesus' sake. And note what else he says, for the gospel's sake. What is the gospel? We're sinners. and We need a savior. And so when someone suggests to you that the gospel is something other than salvation from sin by Christ the Lord. They're telling you a false gospel. The Lord contrasts the person who wants to seek to embrace their life and renounce suffering. I want you to think about all of the vocalists and all of the artists and all of the musicians who started off life in their small church and their small choir. I want you to think about every gifted person that you've ever known. I want you to think about every gifted person who had a gift of thinking and a gift of speaking and a gift of artistic expression. I want you to think of every single person with the most extraordinary gift that you could ever think of. And they live their life. And they manifest that gift and read the next sentence in verse 36. For what will it profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Do you understand this thought provoking question? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Jesus is implying that there is such a thing as profit. And a few men in history have come close to gaining the whole world. Alexander the Great, at the age of 27, leaves Greece, goes to the new continent, marches through the Levant, heads towards Babylon, marches all the way to India. At the age of 30, having conquered Egypt, he stands in the Indus River. He's at the edge of the known universe, and he He falls to his knees and he begins to weep because there's no more worlds left to conquer. He marches back to Babylon and ties a drunk on like no one has ever tied a drunk on before. He catches pneumonia and his lungs begin to fill with fluid and blood. And as he's beginning to die, his generals gather around him and they say, who shall we give the empire to? And with his last breath, he said, give it to the strong. And they took his body and they encased it in beeswax and they hauled it to Alexandria in Egypt and built a temple to the man who would own the world and be God. 
some Roman Caesars have a vast, huge wealth. There are people who have literally tried to gain the whole world. There is a legitimate profit and there is a legitimate gain. Believers are encouraged to make a living and provide for their family. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. Paul told Timothy if anyone doesn't even provide for his own, especially for those in his own house, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel. The Bible isn't saying don't provide for your family. In Proverbs, we read treasures of wickedness profit nothing. Pro- riches profit not in the day of wrath. 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, in about a thousand, the officials of the emperor Otho, they came to Charlemagne's tomb, who lived in about the 8th century, and they pried open his tomb, and it was surrounded by wealth, and there was the king sitting on his statue, and on his skeleton was a a crown of gold, and in his lap was a handwritten New Testament. With all of the Gospels, it was one of the most beautiful and lavish books that had ever been written. And his bony finger was turned to Matthew chapter 8, verse 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Look what it says in verse 37. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If the first question is thought-provoking, the second is heart-searching. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Some men will give something as simple and foolish as lust. Here's what I'll give up for my soul. I'll say no to Jesus. And I'll say yes to me. I'll say no to the life that he wants, and I'll say yes to the life that I want. And it might be something as strange and as foolish as something you can eat, or something you can drink, or something that you can ingest, or something that you can have a relationship, or something that you can work for, and something that you can live for, and something that you can even die for. How many Grammy Awards do you have to have To exchange for your soul. In order to give the answer that Jesus asks, you have to consider the content of the question. What will a man give? The implication is that you can give. What is it that you possess? Your will, your life, your goods, your future. What is it that you have? What is the position of power? That you think will secure a place in eternity for you. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, riches make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle towards heaven. And you'll remember in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, remember that the man said, I've acquired everything that a person could possibly want. I have acquired enough so that even if I lived 10 more lifetimes, I couldn't possibly spend everything that I have. And a voice whispers, you fool. This night your life will be required of you. And then who will have what you've provided? What value does Jesus place on your soul? You know, a piece of 
Charcoal can be burnt in a moment. Diamond might last a little bit more. You can melt lead. You can even melt gold, but it seems to last. How long will the car last? How long will the house last? How long will your family last? How long will the community last? How long will the civilization last? I'm here to tell you that quite literally the oceans will dry up and the moon will disappear and the planet itself will disappear and the solar system will cease to exist and the galaxy will cease to exist and the universe will cease to exist. But you will live forever somewhere. That's the point that Jesus is making. Whatever the personal cross bearing may entail. It requires the willingness to abandon safety and abandon security and abandon personal resources and even abandon health and friends and job and even life. And remember, he says the promise of his coming for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Make no mistake about it. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me. He doesn't say ashamed of Christianity, Protestantism, Calvinism, Arminianism. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, because that's what's at stake. And what does that mean? The world in which Jesus is living is described as sinful and adulterous. And why? Why do they run the risk of being afraid? They're running the risk of being afraid because they, if they obey him, they might be poor. They might have to quit their job. They might have to break off a sinful relationship. And if you don't get anything else, you have to admire the honesty of Jesus. He is not saying even for a moment, come, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And guess what? You'll have your own television show, your own radio show. You'll you'll speak words and you'll create your own reality. We laugh at the foolishness of the stupidity of something like that. Because Jesus is being honest. Jesus is being honest. But remember, Jesus isn't asking you to do anything that he himself is unwilling to do. By the way, will Jesus deny himself? Will Jesus pick up his cross? You see, here's part of the point. He will do all of those things because he's obeying and submitting to his own father. You might face some fear. The fear of being poor, the fear of being hurt, the fear of pain, the fear of shame. Jesus will face reproach and you might also. But note what he says. The cure for a reproach is the son of man also will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. We sang the song, didn't we? In your presence, we find strength to face the day. When you're in the presence of Jesus, you'll find the strength necessary to bear reproach, to repair, bear the pain 
The Lord Jesus knew, the Lord Jesus knew that even as he spoke the words to the people, the disciples would be taken aback and some would stumble and some would fall into this paralysis of fear and it would overtake them from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet as they began to consider the implications of what Jesus is asking. But are you willing to confess Jesus to a godless and wicked generation? Are you willing to gain? Or are you willing to lose? You know, only the devil would say to you, you would give your life for a dead Jew. But make no mistake about it, your Savior came back to life and he lives forever. You know what? The challenge is for you to answer those questions. What will you give for an exchange for your soul? Will you cast your lot with an adulterous and sinful generation? Or will you go all in with Jesus? I heard the story of a plantation slave in the Old South who was always happy. He was always singing, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful, no matter how distressful. His joy was always abounding. And one day his master said to him, what is it that you have that makes you so happy? And the old slave said, I've experienced the love of God. And the forgiveness that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And heaven is my home and my destination in the plantation. Owner said, tell me how I can have what you have. And the old slave said, tell you what. Go home. Put on your Sunday go to best meat and soup. And you come down here in the mud with me and you work with me. And he was shocked. He said, I would never do that. And he says, then you can't have it. And the guy went off in a huff and two weeks later, he says, I'm not fooling with you. You tell me what you have and you tell me how to get it. And he said, just like I told you before, go back to the mansion. Put on the best clothes you own. And you come down here in the mud with me. He said, I'm not going to do it. And he left. And finally, after two more agonizing weeks, the plantation owner came back and he couldn't stand it anymore. And he says, tell me, tell me, I'm begging you, tell me, tell me what I need to do to have what you have. And he said, just like I told you before, go home. Put on the best clothes you have. Come down here in the mud with me and I'll tell you exactly. And he said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And the slave looked at him and he said, no, you don't have to. He goes, what do you mean? He said, you had to be willing to do it. You had to, in your heart of hearts and in your soul of souls, be willing to surrender and submit to the plan of God and the purpose of God for your life. And in order for you to have what I have, you have to be willing to do what I did. You have to turn from your sin. And you have to embrace Jesus as Lord. Christian, Some of you have been saying yes to yourself. 
a lot more than you've been saying yes to Jesus. And in order for you to be a disciple, in order for you to pick up the cross, in order for you to follow him, you're going to have to become keenly aware of just where that journey will take you. And it might take you to a place of selflessness and sacrifice and submission. But at the other end is a life of joy and celebration if you're willing to take the risk. Discipleship is a matter of profit and loss. Losers are keepers. Keepers are weepers. You know it. You said it. Your mother told you. Finders, keepers, losers. Let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for these men and women. Lord, I pray in particular for that person whose heart is empty. But they know that what Jesus is saying is true. That there is life instead of death and there is love instead of fear and there is hope instead of despair in Jesus. And Lord, they don't know if they have a right relationship with you and fellowship with you. They've never experienced what it means to have forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with you. And if that's you, if that's a description of your heart. And you know you need to have a right heart with God. Just slip up your hand so that I can pray for you. Praise the Lord. Just slip up your hand. Christian, if you've said yes to yourself and no to Jesus a lot more than you've been saying yes to yourself and no to Jesus, and you know that that's got to change, slip up your hand. You've been less than the disciple that Jesus wants you to be. I'm going to pray for you as well. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who have raised their hand. Lord, I pray that just like you said, because they're not ashamed of Jesus and his message now, you won't be ashamed of them later. And Lord, for the Christian who has raised his or her hand, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them that, Lord, that they would purpose in their heart and say, I will follow you, Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. And, Lord, I pray for the Christian that you would fill his or her heart with the knowledge and the strength and the willingness to say no to themselves and say yes to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song. And while we're singing the song.